corporation is a dictatorship. That's what it is, right? I mean, you have no rights economically, right? You can be fired at any time for any reason, right? Yeah, but you can leave. You're not going to be sent to Siberia. I've got something a little different today in the form of a bit of a debate. This is episode 101 or 101. And while the previous 100 have had all sorts of weird and wacky and crazy people from psychopaths and paedophiles to cult survivors and former terrorists, there haven't been many interviewees who, at the time of the interview, held viewpoints ideologically opposed to my own. I've avoided that for several reasons. One, I fear being exposed for my lack of knowledge and debating prowess. Two, is it a misstep to platform ideas that I find dangerous or plain wrong? Because the people who are fanatical about their particular belief are bound to know far more about their topic than I. And three, will I be tarred with their beliefs and the negativity around their beliefs by association. But I suppose that's a little cowardly uh, of of a reason not to uh, have these people on. But when you're 100 episodes in, you think, oh, come on, what's the worst that can happen? And so I invited communist and self-described Stalinist Dr. Asatar Bear on the show. Asatar is an activist, professor, teacher, and author of Prison Labor in the US and Economic Analysis. He teaches economic theory at Riverside City College in Southern California. He's written over 200 articles for the Borsen Courier, Austria's oldest weekly financial newspaper. He has a YouTube channel with his lectures on economic theory, youtube.com slash Bear. Follow him on twitter.com slash Bear. I'm aware that some people will have quite a dramatic response to the concept of a defender or purveyor of communism. I totally understand if this one is too much for you. For those of you who stick around, prepare for an open discussion of communism. Now, I'm by no means qualified to have this debate, um, but I do stand on the capitalism side because I love stuff. I love stuff and I love working really hard and I love the idea of progressing on a ladder and moving up in the world, but I also understand the pitfalls. But I'm one of those boring people who say, well, you know, it's probably the best of a bad bunch in terms of structures that we have that can make as many people as possible as unhappy as they can be. Anyway, Asatar, being an an, an economics professor, uh, it, it means I can't really win this debate so it's not really a debate as such it's just he sort of talks to me about his ideas Um, he and I essentially disagree about certain tenets at the core of humanity and and how we want the world to look we also find a lot of common ground and I think we should be having more frank chats with people on the other sides of the spectrum the people on the edge in some respects I find it hard to reconcile the mild-mannered handsome white-bearded man in front of me with the defender of Stalin, a man who had millions of people die of starvation, millions more sent to labour camps. Asatar, as you'll hear, sees things from a totally different perspective. Even if you do consider him the enemy, it can't hurt to know what the enemy is thinking. As for me, I think of Asatar as a friend. It's not the first time I've interviewed him. I like him. I even find some of his views fascinating and enlightening and others I find a little misguided. And um, He looks like Tom Hanks in Castaway, but with a white beard. He's polite and open to criticism, uh, so I hope you get something of value from this. And Please don't email angry comments about platforming dangerous views, 
because that's sort of the whole point of this podcast. It's, that's that's what the podcast is for, um, platforming dangerous views. So without further ado, let's meet Dr. Asatar Bear. Is that that look, is that something that happened in your sort of uh, recent years or have you always had quite a big beard? Started growing it a little bit before COVID hit. And um, yeah, um, you know, um, I, uh, I teach meditation as well as uh, doing political economy. And uh, so I go on retreat and things and uh, went on a retreat and I got this intuition to, to grow it out. And I was like, that doesn't seem that important. And plus it'll make me look a lot older, you know? <laughs> so I didn't want to do it for a while. And then I was like, well, um, you know, I think it's good to, if, if you want to be more intuitive, you have to listen to your intuitive voice. Right. So I'm like, well, uh, all right, I'm going to do it. If it's not that important, then I'll do it, you know? And, um, so I'll look older. All right. You know? And then it's, uh, <laughs> you know, the byproduct was, it, it gave me a, I don't know, a different look, I guess. <laughs> Do you mind me asking? It's a rude question, but roughly how old are you? I just turned 49. It was my birthday on Tuesday. Oh, happy birthday. I don't know. I think maybe it does age you a little bit, just because it's a big white beard, but your face is very young looking. <laughs> it's a paradox, yeah. It is. And also, I mean, sure, I'm sure people point this out, but it's got, it's, it does have that sort of marks quality to it, doesn't it? People say I look like Marx. That's true. I also hear Santa Claus. Yes. And I said to you before, when we spoke on Sean Atwoods, that you're, you're very handsome. You've got a, very handsome features. Do people tell you that often? Um, you know, I have fans. I have a, I've got a few fans here and there. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. It's so nice. tell, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, like what you do as a, a professor and all that kind of stuff, please. Sure. Yeah, well, I teach at uh, Riverside City College. Uh, that's a, a community college or junior college uh, I don't know that they have those uh, in Europe, but, you know, it's like a two-year college uh, that's meant to be on the intro kind of level. Um, there aren't a lot of courses that have prerequisites. There are a few, but, you know, mostly it's it's meant for uh, students who are right out of, out of high school and then they, you know, uh, prepare for, you know, the full degree or or maybe they take a, you know, a career technical type of degree or, you um, or just, you know, it makes education far more accessible, right? It's, uh, it's a lot cheaper. California has uh, really invested in the, in the community college system. And so uh, they're quite good. Uh, the, the facilities are excellent. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's quite different from, uh, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in Boston. Uh, and there, um, they don't have as, as good a, a community college system at all. So uh, it's you know, you're, you're making more of a compromise, you know, like, um, so I wanted to teach her because I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm into academic teaching and, you know, I love working with ideas. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't want to exclusively, uh, teach to rich kids. Right. Of course you don't. <laughs> you're a communist. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'd love to help out the working class if I can. Right. I mean, like, um, and so it seemed like, you know, community college would be a good fit. Um, I mean, the big, the big downside to it is it's an extremely elitist system that we have. So naturally, everyone thinks you're second or third rate, like if you're at a community college, right? So, you know, I deal with, I see a lot of that on Twitter, right? They're like, well, a community college professor thinks this, who cares? You know, like this. <laughs> that's horrible. Well, it's, you know, elitism is all around us, right? I mean, that's sort of, sure. 
that's part of the problem, right? You know, we tend to think that the, the, the rich are smarter and better, you know, I mean, like, despite all evidence to the contrary. Yeah. I, what was your, uh, not that it, it really makes much difference, but to get a picture of you, what was your upbringing like, especially in terms of class and that kind of thing? I grew up in a kind of like spiritual hippie community, uh, Western Sufism. And, um, you know, so I was exposed to a lot of, you know, philosophy and many different uh, religious practices uh, in, in my household. Uh, it's a big uh, commune, you know, where a bunch of people lived in a big old house. And, um, you know, I knew a lot of adults, like as a kid, you know, like I had that, you know, I could sort of see a range of different adult behavior. And um, there weren't like a huge number of kids around in the, in the house, although, you know, later there, there were more, I was like the, I was like the eldest kid. Um, and in terms of class, I, I would say we would sort of like, I don't know, somewhere, it's like middle professional kind of class, whatever that is. I mean, you know, when my parents were nowhere near rich enough to, to not have to work, they always both worked. Right. Um, but you know, they had education and, you know, they had, they had good jobs and so on. And, um, so. And your, your position as a, as a communist, um, that is in the States. I mean, it's an extremely controversial position to take, I think in most places in the world. Um, and in the States, even more so maybe with the history of McCarthyism and that kind of, it depends what class you're in actually. Right. I mean, uh, you know, if you if we if we hear from the working classes, I think it's it's an uncontroversial uh, position. But it, you know, for somebody in my position, yes, rare. That's interesting you say that because I think I mean in the UK, I don't know enough about in the states and in this respect. But in the UK, there has been a move uh, for the the working classes are voting more right wing, um, and the privileged classes are voting further left. Have you has that happened at all in the sort of stateside? Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the problems with this this very strange left-right continuum, you know, that it it doesn't really include class very much in it, right? I mean, it includes mostly social issues, and and those social issues tend to skew along lines that, um, you know, deal with education, right? Like, so, so things like, you know, gay marriage or trans rights or whatever, right? These are, these are uh, issues that break along education lines, and you know, who, who gets an education, right? I mean, that's a, that's a class-based thing. Um, but I think if you ask people, um, should we allow there to be homelessness? Um, should everyone have healthcare? Should we, should we guarantee everyone a job? I think you'll find nearly universal agreement among the working class. Um, and, you know, I mean, we saw that like the enormous popularity of, of Bernie Sanders, or, or even of, of Corbyn, you know, like, I mean, that, you know, the, these are figures who, who have, um, you know, spoke to those issues, were not able to do much about those issues, actually, right? and that's another, another issue. Um, but, you know, and I think it reveals how much people want things to actually be quite different than they are. Um, you know, we, but, you know, the, the, there's a, there's a long playbook of this, right, a long fascist playbook of, of using, you know, the reactionary elements to gain populist support. And, you know, that's extremely dangerous. I mean, and, and of course, many capitalist nations open themselves to this by suppressing communism, right? They suppress real working class populism. And then you get the fake kind, you know, you get the kind that uses racism, toxic masculinity, appeals to narrow religion um, in order to gain political support. These are never majority support positions. All you get from this is you get a zealous 
group of people who who defend that they're still a minority, right? But they, a zealous minority can often carry the day in like a you know in a liberal democracy because you know not everyone votes, right? Or in a parliamentary system, you know, a strong block, even if it's a minority, can often have an outsized influence, right? So, so what do you think of, say, Jeremy Corbyn then? Because to me, he he was a populist who who employed populist tactics, and also I would have said his followers again, they were obviously a mix of people, but a lot of them were privileged, university educated students. Yeah, I mean the same with same with Bernie Sanders in the United States, uh, and I, but it's a segment of of that, right? You know, it's not. It's not like, you know, every university educated person, right? <laughs> not, not at all. Um, so I, I think, um, yeah, you know, the, the, um, there's support across the, uh, across the classes for that, I would say. Uh, it's interesting to me that, that young people are often, uh, you know, whatever their class, right? They're often the most supportive uh, of things like that. Um, you know, I know less about UK politics, so I can't I can't slice and dice that demographic as well. But we certainly saw that with with Bernie here. Yeah, I, I somebody was saying, um, who was it? Daniel Finkelstein was a commentator in the UK. He he had he's very centrist, and he had um, I think his father was in a labor camp in the in the in the Soviet Union. Uh, his mother was in a concentration camp, um, so he had sort of both. And he sort of for him, he sees the perils um, of both sides. And he was saying. Um, about how there's a lot of evidence about younger people like that they tend to be further on both ends of the spectrum um so f- so for example he used he uses vietnam as an example so the people who were the most anti-war were the young people the students and that kind of thing uh but also the, the people who were most pro-war were also the young people and students and that kind of thing so for him it's that just young people are a little bit more extreme does that does that hold true to you i don't know i don't see a lot of um I don't know of a lot of pro-war young people. Um, I think of, you know, this, at least in the U.S., I mean, the, the pro-war position tends to be, you know, this very, like, pragmatic, uh, you know, realpolitik kind of moment, you know, or like the, um, I, I mean, I think, too, that young people know that they're more likely to be the ones fighting in it, right? I mean, than, <laughs> than, than the old. <laughs> I don't know how much of a role that plays, but. Um, I, I, although I think in, in the United States, there is a certain, there's a certain, uh, machismo that can come in, you know, like, like a we're number one kind of, you know, that, that kind of energy. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't see a huge amount of that, but occasionally you'll see that. I went under an overpass the other day and people were, you know, waving us flags and stuff like this. And, um, you know, I don't know if this was exactly connected to, you know, Russia, or Ukraine or whatever, but, you know, I, I was like, all right, what's going on up here? You know, um, So there's definitely that intense patriotic fervor at times. Yeah, yeah I, remember, I remember thinking about that, particularly in the US when Osama bin Laden was killed. And uh, I just saw loads of videos of like very young studenty kinds of people in the streets saying USA, USA. And I just thought, I, I understand the, the excitement and stuff, but it's just this I don't know, it felt like a younger person, the younger person's game, the sort of celebration of war and, I, I don't know, murder and stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like a superhero movie, isn't it? Like, we've we've built up the great bad guy and then, oh, we got him, oh, yay, right? Like, what a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a sports vibe, you know? And then when you're older, you're like, well, I don't know if I can get excited about you know, <laughs> that as much. 
Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Tell me a little bit, because I think here's the thing about communism. Um, obviously, so you were on Sean's, Sean Atwood's podcast and I was there. And a lot of people in the YouTube comments, and they say mad things anyway, but they were very angry, actually. So you must get a lot of a lot of that. And I try to sort of think, my way of thinking is always, I never want to moralize on this podcast. I never want to be like talking to whoever I'm talking to. Oh, I've got better opinions than you or whatever. So I want, you know, I'm, I'm really happy you came on and we can talk about it. What effectively... I've got two questions here. What's the difference between communism and socialism, and and what is the what what is it that you would like the world to be like in very in layman's terms, if possible? Yeah, that's a good question. What's the what's the end result here? You know, communism is you know it it has a kind of ideal, right? It has a kind of dream, right? Which is is summarized in that old line, right? That that. Uh, you know, to each according to their need and from each according to their ability, this idea, right? Um, and it's an idea that is hundreds, maybe thousands of years old, right? I mean, we don't even know, right? How how long have people been dreaming of a society that is truly based on sharing, cooperation, even love, right? 
that is clearly not the basis of any modern society, right? I mean, like, look around, right? Like, um, if you love somebody, do you let them starve to death? You know, I mean, like, that is a very slow and brutal way to die. And you have lots of opportunities to prevent that, right? It takes a while to starve to death, you know? And, and yet, right, globally, 9 million people starve to death each and every year, right? I mean, that's, and the overwhelming majority are women and children. Um, so it's something like 25,000 people per day. This does not make headlines, right? We barely notice it. Although if you want to talk about, right, people will say, well, the Soviet Union killed millions of people and starved their own people, blah, 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 right? Like, I could hear people saying that. I can imagine them saying it while listening about the starvation in particular. Yeah, well, first of all, there's no case for the Soviet Union ever intentionally starving anybody. But secondly, you know, this is a routine matter that happens today, right? Why don't we do something about that? It would take a relatively small amount of money. Um, we don't do something about it because... Capitalism, of course, accumulates great fortunes by taking the wealth from many people. I mean, that's that's the math. You know, you you we like to think it eliminates poverty for something. That's magical thinking. That's that's not grounded in math or logic, right? But back to the question of like, what would what would communism look like? I think the most honest answer is how could we possibly have any idea, right? I mean, like we what we know is capitalism, right? But like th those of us who are, you know, from these countries, right? That's what we know. Um, what, what communism might be like is an exercise in creative imagination because a society that's not based on the brutal taking of wealth from the many in order to give it to the few, we just never have known anything like that anytime in modern history. Um, so, you know, I don't know and neither do you, right? I mean, nobody knows. What we, but we have a kind of idea that it could be better, right? And I think that's important, right? Because every... Everyone who's ever made anything better <laughs> starts with a kind of vague idea, right? I mean, like, you, you, you can't let your lack of knowing exactly what it's going to be like hinder you, you know? You're like, well, I know this isn't good, and I think we can do better, you know? Um, so, and then that's where socialism comes in. So socialism is like, all right, we, we start with a society that is where exploitation is interwoven into every aspect of it. And then how do we, how do we move away from that, right? And I think the, the most obvious and immediate answer is, well, let's do something about the most extreme effects of poverty, right? I mean, we have people who, who are homeless, right? We have people who are starving. Uh, we have people who are, who are dying. I mean, in this country, at least, right? We have people who are dying because, you know, they're diabetic and they can't afford insulin. I mean, this is absurd and barbaric, right? I, so let's start there right like if if we give everyone health care have we changed the basis of society and made it and made it non-exploitative no we haven't right but we are removing some of the worst effects of that exploitation and i think that's where you start right now you know socialism so socialism is always conceived of as a transition right it's it's okay we're going from the exploitation of the feudal era or the capitalist era. And, you know, this is, this is where you get kind of a, a, a departure within Marxism, right? Because Marx and Engels thought socialism would follow on the heels of the most developed capitalism, right? I mean, the contradictions would heighten. Workers would say, wait a minute, we all have the same interests. Why are we working for this tiny elite? 
let's overthrow them. Let's, you know, let's be our own bosses. Let's do this. Right. Um, so they thought that Germany would be, would be the place. Uh, and it actually, they were actually close to being correct. Right. Germany, um, you know, did have a tremendous socialist uh, communist movement, uh, but it was uh, blunted and then destroyed. And part, part of what did the trick there was giving workers some of this, right? That is the, the social democratic movement. And Bismarck was very explicit about this, right? He was like, if we don't give some concessions, the socialists might win, you know? Um, so very interesting, right? Um, and, and then we saw the revolution succeed in a place that had very little capitalism, right? Russia, I mean, probably the least developed nation in Europe at the time, largely feudal or emerging from you know the, the, its feudal history, uh, dominated by agriculture, and so you know the Lenin and and uh, and Stalin and and uh, Bukharin and these thinkers right there are like, well we need to develop capitalism right? I mean that's the roadmap we need to industrialize, um, and we don't you know we have a we have an agricultural society we're quite weak right. I mean, you know, we lost to the Japanese, this tiny island, right? But the Japanese has industrialized, we have not, you know? So they, they said that's top priority, right? But it, how do you do that, right? I mean, did, did they still have an employer-employee model, right? I mean, they still pay people wages, right? There's still a surplus. It just goes into the hands of the state, right? So they have one employer rather than a bunch of private employers, and, you know, they had a word for this, uh, and Lenin called it state capitalism, you know. And, it, you know, nowadays among the left, that is used as a kind of pejorative, like that's to say, oh, they didn't really have socialism or whatever. That's never what Net Lenin meant, right? Lenin was just like, hey, this is part of the process. This is, this is a stage we must go through, right? I mean, we have to industrialize. What we can learn from the history of industrialization is that we can learn not to not to have it take 300 years or whatever, right? Like in the case of England, um, where industrialization proceeded slowly and organically and there were setbacks and reversals. And, you know, the Soviets were like, we have Germany that, that is actively talking about how much they want to conquer us and turn us into their resource producing outpost, right? We don't have time. We, we don't have 300 years. We, we need to do this in 15 years, you know? Um, and they were able to do that. It's a stunning accomplishment. They were able to do that by planning, by, by saying, these are exactly the inputs that we need. This is how much of them we need, right? We are going to get that done. And they did that because they essentially had only one entity, right? Only one corporate entity rather than a bunch of corporations competing with each other with different interests, right? I mean, so they're able to eliminate some of that um, chaotic aspect of competition. This is going to be an annoying thing to say, I suppose, but wasn't it also done so quickly because it was at the expense of so many millions of people who died? Well, people didn't die as a result of industrialization. So no, no, I wouldn't say that at all. Okay. But they were sent to the gulags, like, because for this, for this system, for not industrialization as such, but if we talk about communism, the system for it to work, doesn't it need pretty much everybody on board and everybody thinking the same way? And was that not why, you know, Stalin sent so many to the gulags? Well, I mean, I think you could ask the same question of the capitalist system, right? Does it require everybody to be on board and everybody to think the same way? Well, you don't get sent to the, the gulags if not. Well, you know, there is a country that certainly has the biggest gulags in the world right now. Uh, that's the good old USA, right? I mean, this is what this is what I studied and wrote a book on. 
um, you know, you, you get sent to prison and then you work there. I mean, in the Soviet Union, we call that gulag. Here we call it, I don't know what, incarceration, right? It's not the same as these Sib- Siberian prisons, though, where people, it, it is awful. I agree with you completely, the prison system, in, in particularly in the States, uh, in the UK as well, I've got somebody coming on soon who was in prison for a few years to talk about the the dire dire situation, and I I couldn't agree more with you on that. But I mean, there are there are levels, aren't there? And and the, the gulags were were torturous, weren't they? They were they were beyond anything we can imagine. The suffering that people went through in those. Well, I think it has been ex- quite a bit exaggerated. Um, but you know, we have to consider that the that Russia is a very poor country at the time of the revolution. They had a, you know, the gulags come from the czars, right? I mean, the the Soviets reduced the death rate substantially. It was about one quarter the mortality rate as it was under the czar. But, you know, we don't talk about how brutal the czarist prisons were, right? I mean, we, we talk about how brutal the Soviet prisons were. So I think there's a lot of hypocrisy and doublethink, and that's not really very well historically backed up when, it, when we consider these things. Um, you know, gulags had maximum sentences. You know, I mean, it's... Let's admit that it was also a more brutal time. Like if we go back to the 1930s, like let's compare that to U.S. prisons in the 1930s. I mean, you know, people getting whipped to death in U.S. prisons, you know, I mean, like they had convict leasing and so on. Right. I mean, this is, uh, um, you know, we it's a mistake to consider historical things by present day uh, standards. Right. That's true, but then also I wouldn't want to compare it to the czar system because that's a monarchy. So that's not really comparing it to a capitalist system where we'd like to think. Because the czar system again isn't that another situation where we don't have the sort of freedom that a lot of people would associate with capitalism and not with communism or or a czar. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, right? What is what is freedom? What does that mean, right? I mean, like like you know, we talk a lot about that here in the United States, right? I mean, that's part of our mythology about how free we are, you know. Um, but if you're if you're free to die because you can't afford the insulin, you know, I mean, what does that mean, right? Like, you know, freedom in a negative sense, like, okay, well, nobody's gonna tell you what you have to think or say, right? Okay, but but are you? Is there any safety in your life, right? I mean, if something goes wrong, one thing goes wrong, say your car breaks down or something like that, then you lose your job, right? Then you lose your housing. I mean. You know, this is a society that does, has no net, you know. Um, does that give you freedom, right? I mean, like, how free are you when you're balancing on a high wire and you know you could fall and that that would be very dire indeed? Well, with regards to health, I would say, um, again, the U.S. system is much maligned, I think, around around the world. Because, I mean, in the in the U.K., of course, nobody's uh, dying. I don't think, anyway, somebody's, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if you need insulin, uh, you get that all on the health system over here and, and many other countries. And I think the US system is criticized for not having that, then would you still say, well, yes, but the UK needs to be more socialist and more closer towards communism? I think you can do different things in a developed country than you could in a completely undeveloped country that's quite poor, right? United United States and UK, these are both wealthy developed countries. These are countries that have already industrialized, right? In in, In countries like this, socialism is going to take a very different path, right? But, you know, in, in every case, you look at, well, what, what is it that people are, are asking for? What are they, what do they need? What would make their lives better, right? Um, you know, it's, I, I look at this in terms of the U.S. and China, right? Because China has done some interesting things in the last 10 years, including laying more high-speed rail than the entire rest of the world combined, right? So, 
China goes from something like, I don't know, it's sixth place or something like this in the world to first place. And it's not even close, right? I mean, and, you know, these are very fast trains, right? Um, and this makes hundreds of millions of people's lives better, right? I mean, like, I don't know how much time you spent in the United States, but the United States infrastructure is like crumbling, right? I mean, like you look at the situation with, with roads, go on a plane, right? Pl traveling on a plane is like barbaric, you know, they, the seats always get smaller and they, you know, I'm a, I'm a big person, right? So I, I always feel this, you know, like, I'm like, does my, do both of my shoulders need to be touching people on, on either side, right? You know? Hang on, that's, that's a bit misleading because most people are only listening and it, it, it's sort of, you, you imagine a huge person, and you, you, you look sort of, so, you, is it that you're tall? I am, um, I'm six foot two and 230 pounds, um, you know, all muscle, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we don't seem chubby at all. You seem slim. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fit, you know. That's why I don't love being called Santa, you know, because Santa's so fat. You know? <laughs> what I'd say about China is China's a mixed economy, isn't it? It's not like a, an actual communist economy, is it? Well, there are, there are no communist economies, right? Because like I, like I say, you know, communism represents the faraway ideal. We don't, we don't know what that would look like, right? We, we know what the transitionary state might look like in certain places, right? So China had a very similar problem and they learned from Soviets, right? They studied the Soviet experience very, very carefully, which is good, right? Uh, and they said, yeah, we need to do much the same. They did a lot of similar things early on. Um, and then they went through a reform period, right? They, they brought back uh, and allowed private capital. Um, and now they have mix, right? They have a substantial state control, and especially what they call the commanding heights of the economy, right? The, the key sectors or the, what they consider to be key sectors, they've not privatized that in the slightest. Um, so, you know, telecom and, you know, a, a, a lot of their like infrastructure sensitive things, right? Um, they've kept that. So they have like what I would call from a, from a Marxist class perspective, they have a mix of private and state capitalism, right? Um, however, their, their government is extremely committed to socialism, right? And so they're like, and I don't think that they would even disagree with my assessment. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this to slight China in any way, right? State and private capitalism. But the, the problem is that you can't, you can't just say they have capitalism period, right? Because, because what, what China does is different from every other capitalist nation that you've ever seen. You know, they, you, you don't, you do not see any other nation in, in the history of capitalism doing poverty reduction on the scale of China. You do not see that even the kind of infrastructure investment, which, which is, um, you know, investing in infrastructure is not uh, anti-capitalist at all. Right. I mean, capitalism needs infrastructure too. Right. Like, but the Chinese do it far more systematically. I mean, they, they, their level of investment, their level of planning, of foresight, right? I mean, you know, you look at what they've done and they have climbed the value ladder, right? I mean, they've gone from low level manufacturing, the lowest level that you could have, right? Primary materials, right? To the most sophisticated electronics, cars, everything, right? Nanotechnology, right? I mean, they, you know, they're the biggest importer of, of high technology stuff in the world, um, high technology inputs, right? So 
this is interesting. And this happens over a few decades. I mean, you know, like compare China in 19, you know, 55, let's say, right. Where they are complete, they're just struggling to do primary product industrialization. You know, they've got backyard, you know, coal fired iron pits and stuff like this. Right. You know, um, to China now, right? It's like night and day, you know? Again, I can imagine people, the listeners, I can imagine are saying, yes, but at what cost to individual liberty, to freedom of choice, to freedom of expression, to surveillance over there at the moment? And also, I mean, the the elephant in the room being, uh, I, I won't pronounce this right, but the Uyghur... The Uyghurs, yes. Yeah, concentration camps that are, are keeping them at the moment. There are no concentration camps. I mean, this is a you know, I'm going to just confront this is that this is just a complete mythology right here. And this has been spread by Radio Free Asia, by Adrian Zenz. I mean, this is just nonsense. Uh, there's no genocide and there's no concentration camps. I mean, that's a, a just a um, evidence free idea that has been propagated in the Western press. Um, you know, you've had hundreds of, of independent journalists visit. You, you know, the Muslim countries are not convinced by this either. Right. Um, there's, there's, I've seen photos. Yeah. Well, you know, what you see is that here's a map of different locations, which we tell, we are telling you are concentration camps, right? And then you zoom in on them and you're like, these are obviously schools. This is a running track on this, on this thing, right? You can see that quite well from satellite images. Um, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a hustle where you're, you're, let, let me give you more data than you can deal with and then take my word for it. Um, you know, you Zens has done this this analysis of like, oh, these are all the buildings that have fences and whatever. You know, and like, guess what? A building with a fence is not necessarily a concentration camp. If it were, well, you'd have to conclude that the UK is full of concentration camps, would you not? I mean, you know. Well, the thing is, yeah, but the, I mean, the UK is so open that anybody can go in, and and obviously, I'm not so naive as to think that bad things don't go on behind closed doors and government in the UK and the US and other places. Of course they do. Um, but there's just countless stories of, you know, journalists and things going missing in China whenever they, you know, political opposition, that kind of thing. That's that's the kind of freedom of thought. Well, I, these are stories which are, you know, I mean, like, we have to acknowledge that there's an enormous propaganda machine here. Uh, and, you know, that that takes everything bad that you could possibly put a spin on and attribute it to China and socialism. And, you know, this is this is what propaganda does. You know, I mean, propaganda is far more sophisticated in the West than it ever was in Russia, where the word comes from. Right. Um, you look at look at Russian propaganda posters. These are the most wholesome, straightforward messaging you could ever imagine. Right. Like two happy workers in a field. Right. Like that is, you know, when, when you talk about where is U.S. propaganda, at, it's much more complicated complicated it's much more sophisticated it it plays upon much things that are much more difficult to pierce right it throws data at you that they know you're not going to be able to really parse um and you know this this is the 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 problem is none of the if you really look at the data you're like you don't have a genocide in a place where there's rising population massively rising income right where the the Uyghurs are themselves key figures in all of the government in Xinjiang, uh, where the where the language is funded by the state. I mean, you know, anything you look at, any measure of macro well-being shows dramatic increases in a short period of time. You know, like 
the Uyghurs are by every measure we have in social science, dramatically better off than they were a few decades ago, by every single measure. How is that commensurate with a genocide? There's a book called, um, that I read called The Intelligence Trap, and it's about super intelligent people who can sometimes get cling to an idea and then they go so far down with that idea and they're so smart they can convince themselves of anything. What what would it, and I'm not suggesting that's you, but what would it take? Well, thank you for saying that I'm super intelligent, though. I'll, I'll take that part of it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. This is the thing, and I, I'll say this in the intro as well. Like, I don't usually debate people. Uh, I'm, I'm not that. I'm not particularly smart myself, and I don't really know much about any of these things. So I just think it would be interesting for people to hear another side, which is your side. We can debate a bit back and forward. I'm not going to win because I don't know enough. I don't really know what I'm talking about. But it's just an, interesting to talk to you. But there is. What would it take? Do you want? Do you ever worry that maybe? I mean, we all have cognitive biases and you're smart enough to be able to, you know, to find logic in yours. What would it take for you to go, oh, you know what? And the reason I ask that is because, oh, sorry, I'm dropping stuff, is because with Russia, Ukraine, I, I spoke to so many different people, friends of mine and all that, who were pushing the sort of idea that it was, you know, NATO's fault for encroaching and that's what Putin's upset with and all this stuff. And then Putin came out with basically saying, well, no, we just want Ukraine to be Russian now. And I just thought, are those people who were all saying, no, no, this is all what we did, it's what NATO did, are they now going to turn around and go, oh, God, I was wrong? Or do they, do they go further in and, into their ideas? I don't think it invalidates that. The, I mean, NATO has encroached quite a bit eastward, right? I mean, you, you can just look at them up, right? I mean, one could ask the question, why does NATO exist? I mean, NATO was designed explicitly to be, you know, an anti-socialist alliance. Um, and I mean, you know, you could also ask the question, what would the U.S. do? Um, what if the U.S. Did, what would the U.S. did do if, let's say, Russia or China formed an agreement with Mexico? You know, military alliance. We know the answer. The United States would go nuts, right? It'd go absolutely nuts. Uh, but that's not what Putin said was the was the reason, though. That's he said the reason was because we all thought that might be it. So I was keeping quiet when everyone was saying, "Now it's NATO's fault." But he said, "No, no, no. We just want Ukraine." And after Ukraine, well, Lithuania. You know, like who else? So. At what what is the point when people go? Oh, you know what? I, I like to believe in the like you know it's our own fault as well, and it is. It's every, you know there's fault on both sides, but but this is this is maybe bad what Putin's doing. It might be uh, you know uh, there's a long and complex history between Russia and and Ukraine, right? Um, but it's gotten a lot hotter since 2013, 2014. Um, you know, with the ouster and so on, and you know the direction that that Ukrainian politics has taken since then. Um, you know, I, I, I think that certainly in the United States, I won't, I won't speak for the UK, but in the United States, we have this sort of um, slippery slope going on. It says, hey, something bad is happening in the world and the US could intervene and make that a lot better because we're the good guys. I think that's a supremely naive position to believe in that, right? I mean, my, my position as, as a socialist, as a communist is you know, the working class never benefits from wars between capitalist powers. You know, who's the fodder for that, right? I mean, like, that, who, who's going to die in these wars? You know, it's going to be the poor, you know? Um, rich people do not get hurt by war. They profit from it, you know? And then that the, they want to convince us that it's in their interest, in our, our interests, right? And, or uh, that it has to do with something called sovereignty that we should care about or, or human rights or democracy. And, you know... 
the, the idea that the U.S. is the great respecter of sovereignty, how can people say that with a straight face? I mean, that is absurd, right? I mean, look at the record. No, but we, we can criticize, you can criticize both sides, though. You can still say what Putin's doing is, is mad and, and greedy and stuff. Sure. But I don't think you take a both, I don't think you convincingly take a both sides position on this because there is a power that runs the world. Uh, and it's not Russia, you know? Um, Russia just, it, it stands outside the sphere of U.S. influence, you know? I mean, that's the great crime. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that, that you know, heads of state and important people in, in Europe say, we just don't want Russia having more influence, right? I mean, like, like Schultz cancels the, the certification for the Nord Stream 2 extension of the pipeline, right? Uh, this is just a few days ago, right? Using Ukraine as a pretext. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, how much do they really care about Ukrainian sovereignty, right? I mean, like, it, probably not much, right? Like, not, not at all. <laughs> I agree with you because these are all well, their politicians, right? And so the, you're right. You're, you're totally right, I think, to say that the Americans right now, what do they care about? They don't want Russia to have more power. Uh, what do the Russians care about? They want to have more power. But one of them is invading a sovereign country and murdering, at the moment, hundreds of people have died. Well, a part of it, though. Yeah, but a part of it, and a part of it that has voted to actually have this, right? I mean, they do they not want to be Russian? I mean, it, you know, again, a lot of Russians in Ukraine, you know? I mean, like, uh, um, and especially in these regions. So I don't know. I mean, I, f I find it deeply suspicious when there's this level of duplicity around the real geopolitical interests, right? Like, and and so I'm like, you know, if I hear this talk that says, oh, well, it's all about sovereignty, I just don't, you know, I'm like, convince me, you know, because I don't, I don't see that. Let's get on to like the, the everydays of the communist society that you might hope would exist. Um, I'm a podcaster. I now do this as a profession. Uh, nice. How, <laughs> thank you. I'm enjoying <laughs> this. It's a nice job to have. Um, and I worked really, really hard to get it. And I'm really, you know, happy with it. I don't earn a lot of money. Uh, by anyone's standards, I don't think, but enough to get by. Um, how would that work in, in a society you're like, you know, let's say I'm 19 years old, 20 years old or whatever, and I think, hey, I want to be a podcaster or a journalist. How does it work in, in your vision? Um, you know, as opposed to the, the path that we know, right, which is that if you don't come from money, you've got to scrape, you've got to, you've got to make a living, plus you have to have a hobby, which is trying to create your job that you want right um that's that's what i did that's what i did i i found i, I worked i worked uh, two jobs and i guess you'll say this isn't what people should have to do but i worked as a copywriter so i do that all day and then the podcast was like you know editing it into the night slept a few hours every night and i suppose you'd say that's not how and i i also i should say i do come from a middle class family you can hear it in my voice and you know i'm not i, I don't mean to suggest uh, and I agree with you that it wouldn't have been as easy to do coming from different kinds of backgrounds. Yeah. Or, I mean, is it necessary for a person to, in order to create the kind of work that they like, work which is beneficial to society, right? I'll just say that. I don't care how controversial it is. Podcasters improve our lives, people. Yes. <laughs> I like that. I might, especially, especially this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, here you are, right? trying to do productive work which you enjoy which you're suited for and which which also 
help society, right? And 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 you're forced to what? Jump through hoops, work your ass off for I don't know how long it took you to do this. Ten years? I mean, like it, it takes a, a long time to create the career that you want. You know, I mean, like maybe it took you less, and if so, I'm I'm glad. But you know, it can take it can take a lot longer. You know, it's it's difficult to put a start and stop because obviously they're starting as a journalist and doing this and that and trying to make a bigger name and interviewing skills and the actual podcast itself has been running. 18 months and it's just gone sort of professional about a month ago but i'm also aware that's that's very very rare it, it typically it would take five ten years and and the 99.999 percent never get to do this so i got very lucky with several things things along the way yeah well people like the sound of your your middle class uh, voice so uh, <laughs> my dulcet tones well i have you know what i did the, it, it is a bit different i mean if you if you were which obviously there wasn't as much social media around but back at school i did have a bit more of a london uh you know inflection and and, and people who didn't see me since school days for many years have said to me that I sound to use a Britishism uh, quite posh now and that was part of living abroad and I was having to speak very clearly so that everybody understood me and but who knows but there are there are plenty of working class podcasters with with different accents and things as well which uh, brighten up brighten up the 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 sound I think I just think of like you know because this is a generalized problem right this isn't just you I mean you, you're taking a risk right as as a podcaster because you're you know, you're working in a kind of a new field, right? And and like you say, you know, most don't make it, right? But even even people who are just getting professional training to become uh, a lawyer, let's say, or really anything, right? Um, these people are taking risks. I mean, like like I, my training as, is as an economist, you know, like I was, if you look at, if you do an economic calculation, if you say, what is the net present value of getting a PhD in economics? It is not positive, right? Like, I mean, you get a career out of it, but it takes so long to complete the training. The training is expensive. And the big factor is the opportunity cost, right? I mean, like I went to grad school, I could have been earning money right away, right? That puts me negative in terms of net value, right? So, you know, it's it's actually irrational to become an economist, right? I mean, like that's a crazy idea, right? Why? Well, because all of the costs of doing that, including the opportunity costs have been displaced to the individual, right? That's absurd, right? I mean, we have a huge problem in the United States. We have almost $2 trillion of total student loan debt in the United States, right? I mean, and if you want to have uh, more educated professionals do the opposite of what we do, right? I mean, like, come on, you know, like you're charging the people who have the least ability to pay for it, right? And dangling this carrot, oh, hey, you might be able to have a decent career at the end of this. Maybe, you know, if you play your cards right, you may, you may have a decent career at the end of this. Um, why are decent careers so rare, you know? Why, why isn't every job a decent career, you know? Like, I don't care if you're picking up the trash or you're writing legal documents. You sh there should be a kind of minimum decency in your life, you know? There should be no job which makes you desperately poor. But, you know, in the, in the U.S. at least, there's a significant proportion. I mean, um, you know, the, there's 40 million people in the U.S. who earn less than $15 an hour. $15 an hour doesn't, you know, is barely enough to take you out of poverty anyway, right? So <clears throat> 40 million people is about a quarter of the U.S. labor force uh, who earn less than that, right? So, but this is what capitalism does, right? I mean, I, I think, I, I would say, you know, we have this, if you're on the left, you're like, look, 
college should be free. You know, this is one of one of Bernie's big, big proposals. And I'm like, a good step, right? But that's not actually the major obstacle. You know, the major obstacle is you still need to earn a living. You know, college is work. Getting educated is work. I'm of the belief that you should be paid for work. You know, like you should. And the Soviets actually did this, right? When we look at what the Soviets did, they did some enormously progressive things. You know, in the 1930s, they trained 100,000 women doctors, right? At a time when women are basically property in like a lot of the industrialized world, you know? 100,000 women doctors. I mean, you, could you be a woman doctor in the United States with all of its vaunted freedom in the 1930s? Medical schools were pretty loath to admit women uh, at the time, right? Um, you know, it's get married, right? You can be a nurse. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think we can do a lot better. On this point, did Stalin not say, he who does not work, neither shall he eat? Yeah, Stalin made it very clear that the ultimate goal of communism was, like I said, right, like, to each according to need, from each according to ability. But he said, we're not in communism, we're in socialism. And in socialism, you know, you, 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 you still have to work, right? I mean, like, that's our, that's our situation. We're emerging from, um, you know, an exploitative society, right? The best we can do is, look, the government is, is going to take the surplus that workers produce, but we're going to try to use it for the general well-being and, and see, this is where it becomes, and you know, in Marxism, this is called the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? That's scary word because it's got dictatorship in it, right? But, uh, you know, the question is like, how do you then assess like, well, has the government does that? I mean, every government says that they're doing things for the good of the people, right? Like, but are they actually? And, you know, then you have to get into the weeds a little bit, right? Then you have to, you have to start looking at the numbers. Then you have to, you've got to use that big brain of yours, right? And say, well, how do we measure how, how people's lives are, right? Um, do, we, do we just listen to a bunch of stories from people who went to concentration camps or whatever, right? Like, is that, is that what we listen to? We, uh, we listen to the, uh, you know, the Gulag Archipelago, right? Or do we actually look at data, right? Do we look at the fact that people live twice as long, right? Do we look at the fact that the infant mortality is one-tenth what it used to be, right? I mean... But that's all industrialization. We've already done the industrialization. We've already done the industrialization, so we're in a different position here, right? So what would make life better in, you know, for the average Brit or for the average, you know, American, let's say, right? We have to listen to people, right? But I think the big grain thing is, look, you know, you everyone should have a decent income, right? You shouldn't be thrown out of your house because real estate prices change and now you can't afford your mortgage, let's say, right? Or, I mean, you know, th this happened to millions of people in the, in the, the Great Recession in the US, right? Um, I think you can, you, you start with the biggest pain points for people, you know? I think it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because I think you just, and I don't have any um, empirical data for this, but I, I wonder if you underestimate the amount of people who are struggling financially, uh, uh, working class people who really do believe in the self-made person. And that might be a lie, the American dream, for example. That might be a lie, but a lot of people like that idea. They like the idea of being able to come from nothing. And, and it, like I say, might be a falsehood, might be idealism but some people like it that way and i do wonder you know it's quite hard I, I often think about this it's hard enough just to have a relationship with your you know wife or husband or with a friend uh because you both want different things and when you've got a country of 70 million or in the u.s 350 million how hard is that and if you've got communism that is this like i said before you're not really allowed 
opposition. And I think a lot of people, even if it's not good for them, and you can say, oh, we think this is good for you. They would say, no, but I want to be this guy who works hard and comes up with an idea and does this thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, you know, in the U.S., you would need a transitionary moment that does not abolish small business, right? Because what you're talking about is small business, you know? The, the American ideal of self-reliance and making it through your own effort, this is not big business, right? This is, you know, it's small business, right? It's, it's an individual who starts a business maybe with a few other people, right? Um, so I don't think that's the first thing you would outlaw, right? I think, I think you would probably do something like what, you know, like China has a core group of industries, right? Like I think you would, you would take the big corporations and nationalize them, right? And you'd say, now we're going to run these democratically, you know, because you know what a corporation is, right? I mean, you, you've worked at some of these maybe, right? Um, a corporation is a dictatorship. That's what it is, right? I mean, you have no rights economically, right? You can be fired at any time for any reason, right? Yeah, but you can leave. You're not going to be sent to Siberia. Yeah, well, you could, the point is you can be cut off from your livelihood. I mean, leaving is great depending on how much money you have in the bank, right? I mean... If you have a lot, then well, fuck you, I'm out of here, right? Like, but if you don't, you need that. I mean, and especially in the US where it's tied to your, your healthcare is often tied to that, right? I mean, like the employer has a lot of power and you have almost no say what happens there, right? I'm a believer in democracy. I think we should have a democratic workplace. Uh, you're not gonna have that ever under capitalism, right? Um, so I, I think that would be a good step, right? You just say, let's, let's democratize these large corporations Small business, I care a lot less about. You know, there's there's 30 million or so small businesses in the United States. Almost all of those are um, are sole proprietorships. Maybe 24 million of them are so, right? So we're talking about a relatively small segment. You know, it's not it's not the mainstay. I don't think you start there. You know, I think you say, look, if you want to start a business, okay, you know. That's, that's fine, right? I don't think that's that's anti-socialist or something like this. But I think we, and I think you could even say to those people who are are into that, into that kind of self-reliant, you know, U.S. idea, you say to them, do you think you're better able to start a business if you're guaranteed healthcare or no, right? Well, we do get, we like I said, we do have that in the U.K., the healthcare stuff. And I think that's a huge point. I, you know, I've lived with it. People in the U.K. can't believe that you don't get that in the U.S. because we're so used to it now. The NHS. So I would totally agree with you on that. Going so so, I just want to go back to me because I always want to talk about me. I'm a. Po- I want to be a podcaster. I'll come out of uh, university or whatever, and then how do, how do I do? Because right now I'm I earn money through adverts that businesses place. You know, in the podcast, and so so what would happen? How would it be decided? Who gets to be the podcaster? If everybody's wouldn't everyone do it? I don't. Well, how would it work? Do you think everyone wants to be a podcaster? I wonder. I wonder how many. <laughs> <laughs> would the market get flooded by <laughs> there are well there are jobs i think there are loads of jobs that are like i i wonder if it's like and it's and this is part of society and this this is now i'm sort of going off on a tangent as if i'm going to write my own marks and angles thing now right but i do feel like what i quite like about capitalism and i accept all the all the issues that you've raised today about capitalism right but what i quite like is that often not always but often some of the jobs that are really really desirable are not as well paid at least at the beginning as the ones that are not as desirable which is why like a corporate lawyer can earn loads of money right but the human rights lawyer which everyone wants to do because you get another benefit from being a human rights 
science lawyer. You get to tell yourself you're a good person. You get to do good things. You feel good. You're helping people. Doctors often don't get paid very well until they get to the very top, right? But they get to. There's a great thing about being a doctor. It's it's fantastic, I think, but very very hard work. So. Again, with the podcast, I sort of felt like this is going to be an outrageous amount of work. I'm not going to have a social life for several years. I'm taking a huge risk. But the payoff of that is I get to do what I really, really love. So I really liked that mix. And that's just me personally. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to like that. But can you? I, I worry that that's what would be lost. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that everyone has the same uh, thirst for that. I, I think that um, I think if if you said to people, we're going to structure the economy so that everyone has just a basic level of decency, you know, and, and you, your income is going to be adequate for you to live a decent life. Look, period. You know, if that starts changing, if prices creep or whatever, we will take care of it. Right. I, I think most people would be like, hell yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I mean, and, and might some say, yes, but I want to do this and you don't even understand what that is. And then say, well, all right, let's create democratic structures so that, you know, we, we can, we can fund things like that, that we don't currently understand, you know, like, because society is always in a, in a, you know, in movement and change, right. We have to kind of, we have to, uh, you know, appreciate that and even celebrate it. Right. Um, but I think that's, that's at the margin, you know, I don't know that that's everyone. Right. Um, you know, the thing that people often say is that you're a socialist. Well, but why would anyone pick up the trash, right? Why would anyone do that job because it's so stinky and terrible, right? Like, and this is always funny to me, you know, because I'm like, being like a sanitation worker in the United States is tends to be unionized. It tends to be a fairly good job, actually, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a desirable job if you like having decent pay and benefits, right? I mean, like the kind of people who raise that issue are people who have never done that job. <laughs> they don't, you know, like, it's, it's kind of coming at it from this like abstract perspective. You know, my thing is like work is not inherently pleasant or unpleasant, right? It is the circumstances that surround it that make it so, right? So, you know, picking up trash or digging holes or breaking up concrete or whatever it is, right? I mean, these are all things I've done, by the way, right? Like this, I'm not, I'm not just, you know, spitballing here. Um, yes, I've spent most of my life in academia, but I've, I've done lots of different jobs, you know? Um, so, you know, it's, it's not the work itself, right? It's the context of that. And particularly the exploitation, can you pay your rent or not? Right. I mean, like, and these are the things that we could have an immediate impact on. Um, you know, we could make jobs just better. Right. I mean, why don't we start there? But you say, so, so the, the, you know, picking up garbage or whatever. So that's, maybe not a job a lot of people would want to do but as you say it's unionized it has good benefits and stuff so isn't that kind of the point like because it's paid well the opposite of the doctor one the doctor one you're not paid well you've got terrible hours and stuff but it's a job that a lot of people would aspire to do because of the prestige and 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 what it means to be a doctor uh, a lot of people and i, I don't mean you to- should say something like physician assistant or something like that or i don't know what the right term is it's the low level nurse right because that's the real grunt work in medicine, right? Not, not being a doctor, you know, there's lots of low paid, what are they called? Medical assistant or something. Um, I forget all the terms. I'm, I'm not in that field. So I don't, there's a whole level of spectrum of different things, at least in the U S. Um, and a lot of these are very low paid and they're, and they're very hard work and there, and there isn't a lot of opportunity for career advancement, right? Like, just like lots of other places in capitalism, right? I mean, like if you work as a retail clerk, Where's your next step up from that? You know, going to become the CEO of that corporation? I doubt it, right? That's a dead end job. 
um, typically. Could be the manager of a, of a store. Maybe you could become the manager, right? But can everybody do that, right? I mean, like, you know, this is a... Um, the best rise to the top. <laughs> do they? <laughs> yeah, well, obviously not always. But the issue is, well, and I'm sure you've heard this one before. I mean, anything I, th- I throw at you, you've heard a thousand times. You must be tired of hearing. But, you know, in a society... Especially if you look at a communist society, like one to one to a th- one to three percent of the world are psychopaths, right? So they might take advantage, and that seems to have happened in the past. And then also a certain percentage of people are, and it's not popular to say. But then what you're saying is not very popular either. But it's not popular to say. But some people are a bit lazy, and I might be lazy if I didn't have more incentive. So the lazy people and the psychopaths. They're a problem for communism, aren't they? Well, let's ask. Let's turn the question on on their head. Are they a problem for capitalism? I mean, the psychopaths tend to end up running corporations. Let's say, right? If they're well connected, right? If not, they just become serial killers. You know? <laughs> yeah. If they're poor. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, do you want to have a psychopath running your dictatorship workplace? I think we have a psychopath probably running the UK, and I think there's probably one right now running the US. I think the previous one running the US was also one. Uh, I think a lot of world leaders are on the verge of being, because to want to have that much power, I think you have to be uh, at least, you know, somewhere towards being, it's on a spectrum, of course. So capitalism has a psychopath problem too, yeah. But but they, they, they let limited power. There's only so much that Boris can do. There's only some, and we saw with Obama, he wanted to get rid of guns or whatever, and he couldn't even do it. The, the lack of power in a, not, in, a, in a capitalist society that isn't totalitarian is, is like the safety net for these psychopaths who lead countries. Well, not if you lead a corporation, though. There's not much of a safety net there. Yeah. Look, a- Amazon is atrocious, you know, and I had I had someone on this podcast talking about he, he infiltrated Amazon to work in one of the warehouses and sort of expose what goes on, and it is disgusting. And the fact that they're, that they're allowed to get away without paying people, because like, they just don't pay people, uh, it's it's awful. And Bezos, with the money he's got, like he needs another billion. So I couldn't agree with you more in that, that respect. But again, it's not the same as, you know, the great... F- and, and I know you're saying it's different times, right? But I, I have to say these points because people afterwards are going to shout at me for, you didn't even mention the great famine of 14.5 million people died from starv- starv- starvation. Um, the fact that Stalin executed 81 of the highest ranking 103 members of the Communist Party. These are things that Boris right now or or Biden are not able to do to their opposition. Well, right. But, you know, the the so I think we're on the same page, though, because you're saying, if I could paraphrase it, you're saying um, it's, it's democracy that is the great antidote to the concentration of power, which rewards the psychopath, right? And I could not agree more. I, I think we should extend democracy. I think we should have real democracy. You know, like, like if your boss says you're fired, do you get to say, let's vote on it? No, you do not. Right. I mean, like, that's a dictatorship. Right. I mean, like, you know, we, we should have real democracy in the places where we actually spend most of our time, which is at work. Um, and 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 our, we should have some control over these huge economic entities. Right. These corporate bodies, um, they should not be in private hands. We should not cede the control over that to a few psychopaths. We should actually vote on that. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that that does a lot to prevent the concentration of power that you worry about. But, you know, we've also been told a bunch of lies about this, frankly, about the Soviets. You know, the, the Soviets did have democracy. It's, it's incorrect to frame that as a dictatorship where Stalin had unlimited power. Even the CIA admits to that, right? The CIA has a, a document where they say, you know, Stalin works with his, you know, he, he, he has he has far less power than 
than what we well what we tell everybody in our propaganda. You know, um, you know the the Soviet Constitution is actually quite good. Um, uh, so, you know, we have the, I think we have this idea already, right? We have the, the idea that democracy is good. That's a pretty widespread idea. Um, that forces the capitalists of the world into a very awkward position because they're like, yay, democracy. But at the same time, they have to undermine it at every turn, right? Because a powerful political force uh, emerges, somebody who says, hey, let's, uh, let's make college free for everybody. Let's give everyone a decent wage. Let's give everyone healthcare. Somebody like Bernie Sanders must be destroyed, right? And every tactic will be used to derail that candidacy, even though it's massively popular, right? I mean, this is, and everyone can see this, right? Everyone can see this is totally anti-democratic. We're not, we're not actually doing democracy. We're doing this bizarre caricature of it, right? Well, when we talk about democracy, we're talking about politically. I don't think we're talking about private businesses and things like that. And also, isn't a private business essential for the private home? And I'm not even sure that I know what that means. But I read that if you want to debate a communist, you need to say that because because don't 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 appeal to like I, I, if somebody in the 19th century said this, it was like don't appeal to like oh come on you're being naive because it's giving a way that that maybe you're a bit more hardened than they are and they have better morals than you. And don't don't appeal to other things. What you need to say is that. Uh, communism doesn't allow for private property and homes and and to have real freedom you need to have your own home no everyone should have a home right everyone should have a home private property communists are against private property meaning you shouldn't have one person that owns all the homes right <laughs> you know a person should own one home how many do you really need right i mean like you need one maybe you need another one to go on a vacation or something but like that's pretty much a waste anyway right like i mean you, you know. who who gets the nice ones because I lived in Berlin, right? And it's horrible. Like East Berlin, I was living there for three years and it is all horrible. Everything's rubbish and not nice. And of course, you know, all the museums, you see all the old cars they had, all the horrible things before the wall fell. The funny thing is, and, and I think this is, you know, in your defense, when you speak to a lot of the old East Berliners or East Germans, they a lot of them are very proud of, of how it was and they say it wasn't so bad. So so I can see how a different kind of person who isn't like me and isn't like a lot of, you know, they might have enjoyed that. I just think, but also you weren't allowed to leave your country. Information wasn't allowed in or out. Uh, people were spying on you the whole time. Surveillance, people turning against each other. So, so it's just a case of, we talk about democracy. To me, that's not freedom and, and democracy. Yeah, but you know, you have to look at that socialism is an island amidst a sea of hostile capitalist imperialist powers, right? That's the situation, you know. So socialism in 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 Russia was this welcomed by the rest of the world, you know? Did the rest of the world say, "Wow, interesting, a political experiment. Let's see how it plan plays out." No, 14 nations immediately invaded it on the side of the monarchists, right? I mean, like and, you know, this is the third bloodiest conflict of the 20th century. I mean, they made it very clear that they're willing to kill millions of people, tens of millions of people, to prevent socialism from, to strangle it in its infancy, right? Um, and then you have the Nazis, right? The Nazis saying that they're going to be to invade, right? Being funded, being supported, right? No one is making alliances against the, you know, the, the Soviets are forced into making a, you know, a kind of a standoff, right? With, with the Soviets um, because yes, everyone is hoping, you know, okay, they'll invade and destroy socialism, right? And against all odds, the Soviets managed to win. So, you know, do they do some authoritarian things along the way? 
Yeah, so that they're not destroyed. I mean, like that's the context, right? Like when when you have a world that is bent on your destruction, you might have to restrict a few things, you know, like do you have a problem with spies? Come on, watch a James Bond movie sometime, right? I mean, like that stuff is real, you know, like there were a, there's an enormous investment in spying and surveillance, right? To try to destroy the Soviet Union, right? That's a real thing, you know? So like what do you do, right? You either say, oh, okay, well, we can't restrict anything. I guess we'll just, we'll die as a state and be replaced by a capitalist oligarchy, right? They eventually managed to do that, right? With some help from the inside. Or you could say, all right, we're going to, we're, we're going to limit some things, you know? We're going to have to limit some mobility. Does like every country has to do it, has to adopt the kind Every of- country has to do it, yeah. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, the Soviets had, you know, they had a certain naivete when they, when they first, when the revolution was successful, they said, we've done it, comrades, and pretty soon the rest of the world will follow. You know, I mean, that's really what they thought in those early days. And then it started to become clear, that's not going to happen. We're on our own here, you know? And uh, what a moment that must have been, right? To, to be like, we, we thought the workers of the world were going to rise up, but it, it's just us. Oh my God, right? I mean, that's a rather different situation. Let's go put loads of people in gulags and murder them. If they're working with the Japanese, if they're working with the Nazis, I mean, what choice do you have? You know, um, you could die, I guess. That's your other choice. It's been um, a real pleasure talking to you and really, really fascinating. I, I've learned loads of stuff as well. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy for capitalism. <laughs> I just like it and all that stuff. But I really respect how you debate and how you, you know, you have your kindly Santa Claus but slim nature about you. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Asatar Bear, for coming on On the Edge with me, Andrew Gold, for a clear and frank discussion about communism and Stalinism. Come on, he's a nice guy, even if he defends a mass murderer. To be clear, I think Stalin is one of the most vicious and psychopathic dictators in history. I'm aware that many listeners will have family and relatives who were affected directly by Stalin's atrocities. Uh, But for Asatar, Stalin appears to be more of a product of his time. I hope that's not misrepresenting his views. Remember to follow Asatar on at Asatar Bear or go to youtube.com slash Asatar Bear for more of his stuff. Follow me on at Andrew Gold underscore OK. I don't think I really held my own in that conversation. I'm starting to worry that to call this a debate is a little disingenuous, but that's partly due to my lack of knowledge compared to an economics professor specialising in this particular subject, and partly also because I try not to interrupt too much in this podcast. You've heard the views of a paedophile, a psychopath, a man who taught his dog to Nazi salute, uh, a woman who says she can remember being in the womb, and now a Stalinist. And, you know, what a dinner party that would make for. I do love talking about the things we're not supposed to talk about. And I hope you do too. 
Join me in a few days to discuss disconnecting from social media and technology with famous podcaster Emma Gannon. And coming up soon are anti-woke and anti-religion comedian Stephen Knight back on the show, Dr. Shoham Das for some more true crime stories, and documentary maker Chris Atkins, who was arrested for tax fraud or something like that, he'll explain it, and spent two and a half years in prison, Wandsworth, documenting all of it in a book. It's a fascinating look behind the bars. Hope you stick around for those. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.